Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the program, an interview with American financier and former White House Director of Communications, Anthony Scaramucci. This is an episode of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Intelligence Squared in partnership with Havas Creative. Season 3 of No Bullshit Leadership is now airing. We've some fantastic guests in store, including the editor of the Financial Times, Rula Khalaf, and entrepreneur, Sharmadine Reed. Search No Bullshit Leadership wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. Now back to today. Our host on the show is global CEO of Havas Creative Group and author of the book, No Bullshit Leadership, Chris Hurst. Here's Chris with more. Welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm Chris Hurst, author of No Bullshit Leadership, and in my day job, I'm global CEO of Havas Creative. Leadership is difficult, but not complicated. In this podcast series, I want to help you cut through the bullshit and get to the heart of modern leadership, which, put simply, is the power to get stuff done and make stuff happen. In each episode, I'm joined by a different inspirational leader who is doing just that, leading change in their worlds of business, sport, or politics. My guest today is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder of global investment firm Skybridge Capital. In 2011, he received the EY Entrepreneur of the Year Award and in 2016 was listed in Worth Magazine's 100 Most Powerful People in Global Finance. In 2017, he served as White House Director of Communications for a famous 11 days. Although this was the shortest tenure at the White House Department in history, it was certainly a memorable one. Welcome to the podcast, Anthony. Well, first of all, Chris, thank you for saying it was 11 days because some people say 10 days and they get it wrong wow. and, it, and it hurts my feelings. Fire away. A no bullshit podcast. You know, I, the problem with me, I got fired, I think, for vulgarity at the White House. Could you imagine somebody getting fired for vulgarity at the <laughs> Donald Trump White House? I mean, you just got to think of the irony of that, but that's fine. Before well, I, I, I made it 11 days because it was, you know, I rounded it up. 10.5 rounds up to 11, right? So uh, Okay, okay but let me, let me just clear now. things up. When General Kelly fired me, he fired me at 9.15 in the morning. And I said, but General, I have X, Y, Z to do. Do you mind if I just clean this all up for everybody before I leave? He said, no problem. So I departed the White House at 3.15. The announcement of my firing was at 2 o'clock. So I'll let the official scorers say what they want. 
I choose to say that it's 11 days. It makes me feel better. But okay. by the way, by, by the way, I have asked uh, the future presidential candidates, I need one more day in the White House so I can at least get it to a round dozen. Don't you think that would be a fair thing, Chris? That would be fair enough. And, and I hope they paid you for 11, not 10. I hope they paid you right right for the, to the end. Well, that's um, another, another irony. I took the job and uh, I said no salary. And so uh, the government says, well, you have to pay, you have to earn a dollar a year. So I think I have a check laying around here somewhere for like one or two cents from the U.S. government. Okay, we probably should put an NFT on that check. But yeah, anyway, yeah, you should. You should, you know, you I, should. I wasn't I wasn't doing it for the money. Obviously, I thought I was going to uh, be helpful, but uh, it it ended badly. But since this is a no bullshit podcast, when something ends badly like that. You own the badness of it. You don't try to pretend that it didn't end badly. And I'm very accountable for that firing. If you go back and study what happened, I said something to a reporter that I trusted. He recorded me. I thought it was off the record. He insisted that it wasn't because I didn't technically say the words off the record. But we had known each other for a long period of time. Our families had gone back 50 years here on Long Island. Our parents had worked together in the same industry. So I erroneously trusted him. That's my fault. I have to own that. So you have a no bullshit leadership podcast. Let's start out with no bullshit principle number one. If you make a mistake, own the goddamn mistake. You don't stand around like the scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz and try to blame other people. I made the mistake. That reporter lit me up. It's not his fault. It's my fault. I gave him the dynamite stick that he stuck up my ass and blew me out of the White House. Okay, so so let's just, you know, get right to it. Let's get right Own to your it. mistakes. You want to be a good leader. People, people, you want to be a good leader, people have to trust you. And they trust people that are not bullshitting themselves, Chris. And you know that. That's why you're running this podcast. 100 percent Well, so that that's a nice segue. Question one. In three words, describe your leadership style. Direct. Uh Mistake-ridden, mistake-ridden, because I'm an entrepreneur, so I have taken a shotgun approach to life, and so some of these bullets are landing, some of these uh, smattering of uh, pellets, if you will, and some of them are missing. So um, I would say uh, forgiving, because if I'm empowering you to do something in my organization, and you are working your you-know-what off, and it doesn't work, I'm cool with it. You're not going to get blamed for that. The effort to me is more important sometimes even than the ultimate outcome because we'll yep. get to it. We'll, we'll get to the outcome. If you said to me when I launched Skybridge Capital uh, March of 2005 that Skybridge would be what it is today, I would say no, no chance of that. Uh, but we made adaptations. We made pivots as a result of having that sort of style. Last part for me, I'm a huge delegator. I couldn't have raised money for American presidents, built the SALT conference, uh, have uh, seven funds, seven different fund styles under management and do all of that by myself. So if you're listening here, don't be a bottleneck on your people where they feel they have to come to you for every decision. Delegate, give them authority. But if something goes wrong, help them. Don't start ascribing blame on your people uh, make your people know that you're there to help them with their careers and their families, and they'll stay with you a very, very long time. And if you could delete one word from the kind of bullshit business jargon dictionary, what would that be? Oh, fuck. I mean, you know, how about granular? 
Jesus Christ. When someone says, let's get granular on this, I'm ready to like stab myself in the eye. You know, I'm ready to find like a butter knife somewhere and take out one of my eyeballs when I hear we're going to get granular on something. I mean, Jesus yeah, Christ. You and me both on that. I'm going to take be, you know, Just come on. Let's knock out that that nonsense. And And what leader do you most admire? Well, there's a lot of different leadership styles. And so... When I study leadership, uh, the leader I admire the most, uh, believe it or not, is FDR. Uh, I mm-hmm. admire him the most because he had a subtlety to his personality where he could digest a lot of conflicting ideas. He also knew where he wanted to go. And, uh, you know, you, you, you know the political cliche. Some people are weather vanes. You want to be a signpost. Some people are thermometers. They're measuring the temperature, you want to be a thermostat where you're guiding people. I would say that FDR was incredibly successful. And what's the, and what's the best advice you've ever been given? So that's a really good question. And it's very hard to live up to. Uh, but the best advice I was ever given was from my grandmother, okay, which was what other people think of you is none of your business. And she was a very free-spirited, very hardworking immigrant to the United States. And her attitude was, I want you and all my grandchildren to express your individuality on planet Earth and be yourselves. Uh, a lack of conformity comes with criticism. If you want to conform and you want to just be inside the mainstream of everything, then certainly no one will criticize you or very few people will if you take an opinion, you take a side, you get something wrong, like a Donald Trump, you 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 yeah. start a business and you have a, a bad performance, stock market performance or otherwise, you're going to open yourself up to criticism. And so the best advice was given to me was by my grandmother is what other people think of is none of your business. Ignore it. And I can tell you, Chris, it is very hard to do that. Anybody yes. that can tell the yes. other people, oh, I totally do that. They are not in the no bullshit zone. They're bullshitting themselves because when I got blown from the White House, ejected into Pennsylvania Avenue, skinned alive, and then rolled in margarita salt by the late night comedians, if you want me to tell you that that wasn't painful to me, I could say that, but that's not the case. It was painful. uh, And it caused a period of humblingness, if you will, a period of self-reflection. I think that whole experience, by the way, made me more psychologically minded, more self-aware and more uh, aware of others. Do you think it's changed you as a person? Changed me as a person. I think it's made me a better person, frankly. Mm -hmm. I I would say a better person. I think, uh, you know, one of the worst things that can happen to you is a really good run of success where you start believing your own bullshit. Okay, that I think can can be detrimental, right? That is the the foibles of Greek tragedy, the hubris, the arrogance. You know, I'm I'm flying high, and so therefore I will always fly high. Um, uh, that was an unexpected way to go out of the White House. Again, born from, and again, I'm fully accountable for what happened. Uh, but yes, I do think it's changed me for the better. I think it's made me realize that when I put my ego into things and I put my uh, pride into things. I make really bad decisions. And I think it's it's caused me to reflect more and to also, I think, be a better decision maker. And, you know, the other thing that happens, Chris, a lot of people, uh, you know, you get to get real sense when you're having a bad moment in your life, you get a real sense for who your real friends are. 
Yeah, for sure. Do you think you were a little naive maybe going into it? Okay, so that's a funny question, okay? And so I'm going to respond to this. I was not naive. I was naive to the 20th power, okay? Any <laughs> level of naivete that you think I had, it was exponentially worse than that. And 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 let me be brutally honest with you because we're in a no bullshit zone. Yeah. Um there's a lot of books behind me. I've read a lot about government, a lot about governmental leadership. Um, my impact with Washington and the way Washington actually works was so foreign to me. You have to remember, and again, I'm not, I'm not, a, you know, this is not a explanation or anything like that, or even a, you know, a self-soothing. This is just an observation. I grew up in a blue-collar family. My father wore a greenie. That was a green uniform he wore to operate a crane. When he was done with the day's work. He took the greenie off and he dumped it into a safety clean drum uh, and then he returned home. And so I never saw the inside of a corporate office building. I never saw the inside of a country club, uh, never hit a golf ball, never swung a tennis racket. And my first job interview at Goldman Sachs, I was dressed in 100% polyester. At a poly <laughs> I, I looked like a young undertaker Okay, at the goddamn interview because I had 100% polyester. I was fully flammable for my first job interview. <laughs> and the guy looked at me and said, hey, you know, you're a smart kid, but you're the worst dressed person that we've met at the Harvard Law School. And I said, really? This is like my best clothing. And he's like, dude, you don't know what you're doing. Go to Brooks Brothers, buy yourself natural fiber clothing and <laughs> come down tip. to Goldman Sachs. I'm sorry? It's a good tip. It's a good yeah, life tip. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know any better. I called my mother. I said, you know, the guy said I look like shit. She's like, no, you look fantastic. What does he what does he know? I said, Well, I think he knows a lot, Ma. I said, We got I gotta go buy a Brooks. So so you want to talk about naivete? Every step of the way for me, Chris, there were rites of passage and self-conscious embarrassments that took place. Um, but I did not understand the mechanisms of Washington. So I got an eleven day PhD in Washington scumbaggery, what these guys are really like. <laughs> to be around. And so, no, I wasn't naive, Chris. I was exponentially naive. Uh, and again, I think that's made me a better person as well, because I have a better feeling for how these guys operate now than I would have had I not gone through that experience. Very, very, very good. So I, I want to take you back a little bit. You mentioned Harvard Law School and you mentioned Goldman Sachs. Um, uh, so, I mean, Goldman, you know, you, you got a you got a job at Goldman Sachs, one of the best uh, best employers in the world. But you were you were fired and then rehired. I mean, that's a pretty yeah. spectacular story, right there. What happened? Yeah, well, yeah, I was listen. General when General Kelly fired me. It wasn't my first time being fired. It will likely not be my last time being fired. I mean, you know, what am I going to do? But I got fired because I sucked at the job. Okay, so what happened to me? And this is a cautionary tale for your young listeners. I was a pimply-faced, insecure, 24, 25-year-old at Harvard Law School. I was a fish out of water there. We had all of these sort of boarding school people and blah, blah. I was a public school kid, and I had gone to Tufts, but it wasn't Harvard. And you had all these elitists there. I remember telling my classmates, you guys think you're that smart. There are kids in my neighborhood that are putting in sheetrock right now that are way smarter than you guys. They just didn't get the opportunities that mm. you guys have. But I wanted to prove to everybody, I had a chip on my shoulder. So I wanted to get Chris the best job 
the job that was going to impress my friends. Remember what I said about my grandmother? What other yeah, people yeah. think of you is none of your business. Why? Well, that that wasn't me at 25. I wanted everybody to know that whatever the best job was, that was the one I was getting. At that time, it was in the real estate department at Goldman Sachs. Real estate was hot in the late 80s. Goldman was hot. Still mm-hmm. is, but it was hot in the late 80s. And so when I got that job, I wanted to go to the coffee clatch or the cocktail hour prior to graduation and, you know, rub shoulders with people and let them know like a proud peacock that I had gotten that job. The problem was I sucked at that job. I was ill prepared for the job. Uh, It was a technical job. It was a lot of spreadsheet and dividend discount analysis. I had gone to law school, not business school. I wasn't well schooled in finance. And so when I got the job, uh, the Goldman guy said, well, we're going to train you to do this. And we went into a recession. And they got a mandate from up high that they were going to let go 25% of the work staff. And I was at the bottom 25% in terms of performance. So they let me go. I can tell you the exact day, by the way. It was a Friday night, February 1st, 1991. I was 27 years old, burdened with tremendous amounts of school debt from Tufts and Harvard, and I'm being fired after 18 months at Goldman Sachs. But here's a lesson to people. When you're getting your ass fired, take it like a man or a woman. Okay, don't be a baby and blame the people firing you. I said, okay, I get it. I stink at the job. But I turned to the guy that fired me. I said, listen, I've worked hard. I've tried my hardest. I have a good attitude. I'm a team player. Uh, could, Could I use you as a reference? He said, yes. That weekend, I went home and I built a list. I had to go out and look for a job. I got a roll of quarters. There were no cell phones back then. Went back into the city. I was pumping quarters into pay phones. And one of my buddies said to me, well, there's a job. There's an opening at at Goldman Sachs. I said, oh, my God, you got to be kidding me. He says, yeah, no, in the sales area at Goldman. I said, okay, that's great. I called the guy that just fired me. And I said, listen, there's a job. You fired me from the 17th floor. There's a job on the 29th floor. Would you recommend me, recommend me for that job? And he said to me, yes, you would actually be good at that job. So I got fired on February 1st. I got rehired on February, I'm sorry, rehired on March 28th. It was, I was in my little odyssey for two months. They yeah. gave me an $11,000 severance check, Chris, when I got fired. When they rehired me, the personnel office called me. They said, you know, we're never going to mark you down as fired. We're just going to say that it was an interdepartmental transfer. So uh, that's cool. But we need the $11,000 back. I said, I said, baby, you're not getting the $11,000 back. Okay, I'm trying to switch from polyester into natural fiber. <laughs> trying to pay, I'm trying to pay off my school debt. I said, you can tell every goddamn person on planet Earth that I got fired. I don't care. I'll be on the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast in 30 years telling them that I got my ass fired, but I'm keeping the $11,000. So what did you – so you, you're, back, you're back at Goldman. Um, what what was the – if you had to look back on, on your time there now – what would be the, the the one or two things that you, you know, you said you were this kid from a kind of working class background. You're yeah. suddenly immersed in this kind of completely alien world, I guess, in some ways at first. What was the one or two biggest things you learned from from, from Goldman in that kind of first formative show? So I left Goldman Sachs 25 years ago this week. So I spent seven years at Goldman Sachs, less that two-month interregnum period. 
that weekend, it was after Thanksgiving in, in the United States. I was 32 years old. I turned to my pops and I said, Dad, there's a lot of politics here at Goldman. But you know what? I'm going to create a business and there's going to be no politics, no inter-office politics at my business. You want to talk about being naive? Okay, we're talking about the <laughs> word naive. That is one of the most naive things that you could ever say and or think. Okay. Yes. And so the minute you have three people in a room, Chris, you've got yeah. politics, right? 100%. And, and, and so I said that to my pop. And so I look back very fondly on that time at Goldman. Once I realized again how naive I was, I started going back to my old bosses and I started going back through the protocol and procedures at Goldman and started adopting many of them mm. at my first company. And of course, in my second company, Skybridge, because they were best in breed, they were best of class practices. So the central thing I learned from Goldman Sachs is ethics. I think they had a compliance department that was second to none. Uh, my father was a very honest man. I don't know if you ever watched The Bronx Tale, uh, but when I saw Robert De Niro in that as the bus driver, that yep. was my dad. Okay, He was a flawed guy like all of us, but if my dad had a parking ticket on the main street of the town that I grew up in, uh, he would take the parking ticket. He would walk it up to the post office, get a money order. He would even go home and get the, uh, the checkbook out. His attitude was, I've got no debt. If you cannot afford the uh, price of the ticket, do not go to the movies. Live below your means. He was a saver. No funny business. He paid his taxes on time. And Goldman Sachs was like that. Okay. And so my companies have always been compliance and ethics first, performance and customer service a close second. I learned that from Goldman Sachs. And so I don't even have a personal trading account because of that. Uh, because all my money's in the fund alongside of my clients. Right, right, right. And and what? So you you leave a I guess a, almost an archetype of, uh, of of corporate America in some ways in Goldman Sachs and sure. become an entrepreneur. And yes. Become an entrepreneur, right? So so what what do you what do you think the difference in are there any differences in in leadership as an entrepreneur to leadership in a kind of let's say an established corporate environment? Really, that's a really good question. So I want to be thought. I want to try to be thoughtful about this. So I think there are different leadership models. You know, mm. I think that uh, you can't be me, frankly, and run Goldman Sachs. And what do I mean by that? I think that David Solomon, who's a contemporary of mine and somebody that I respect enormously, he has a certain temperament that fits that corporate archetypal model that you're suggesting. Uh, he's probably more process driven than me. He's probably more committee driven than me, uh, all of which has worked successfully for them. Um, I, I, that doesn't take away from their entrepreneurship or their entrepreneurial capabilities, but I just think it's a different personality style. I, I uh, rightly or wrongly, and again, this is me being as self-reflective as possible. I'm a little bit more iconoclastic. I'm a little bit more yeah. free bird than that. And so I have to sort of run my own business, uh, fitting it to my own schedule. And I think there's more of a conformity to corporate leadership. And again, I'm not saying that's bad. I think it's been incredibly successful. I own, I own stocks in companies like that. And uh, I'm, very, I'm very happy with the performance of those companies. But the flip side is, you know, uh, 
I've had a fun time. I'm just going to be honest with you. I mean, the last 25 years for me, I could never have spoken at the World Economic Forum, worked in the White House, flown Air Force One, uh, written five books, uh, built a couple of successful businesses, sold a business, uh, reloaded into a business, had a podcast, hosted a television show, uh, be a CNBC commentator or CNN commentator from the likes of Goldman Sachs. And again, that's not saying anything offensive to them. I'm just saying for my personality and sort of this blended sort of things that I like doing, I couldn't couldn't really live in that environment. And so this is another lesson for people listening on a no bullshit show. Own your shit, know who you are, uh, and you know, don't 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 tie yourself down if that's not your personality. I remember Mario Gabelli saying to me, Hey man, there are five Italian partners at Goldman Sachs. One of those guys is gonna have to die to make you a partner. You better leave now and start your own business. And so right. that's that's what I did. As soon as I paid off my school debt, uh, I left Goldman Sachs and a seven-figure salary. And seven figures is a lot of money today. It was way more yeah. money in 1996 uh, yeah. to get a zero salary to start my own business uh, on my own dime. And I had to build all of that stuff with one of my partners and I think it was one of the best things I've ever done in my life, frankly. And I'm very, very happy that I had the balls to do that at that age. Do you think you were always going to? I mean, do you feel like you were always going to be an entrepreneur? Yes, I do. I do. Because I think you idealize yourself somewhere between 12 and 19. You're having this idealization of yourself. And you're and you're saying to yourself, well, when I grow up, I'm going to do X, Y, Z. The big laugher is when I grow up, I'm going to be different than my parents. And then you and I morph into our parents, Chris. You know how it works, right? You know, so that's the, that, that's the sh- shit that 100%. makes me laugh now that I'm watching my kids yeah. tell me how much better they are than me. And I'm like, yeah, you probably are better than me. You grew up richer than me, you sons of bitches. So you probably are better than me. But, but you know, and then but you, you have this realization. You end up morphing into them anyway, even though you're trying not to. But, you know, what I would say yeah. is that that uh, at age 13, my dad was in a little bit of an economic crisis. He came home. There was a recession going on in the United States. Uh, his hours got cut back. Uh, there was economic anxiety in the house. I went out and got myself a paper route. Uh, and I started sharing the income of that paper route with my parents. And then I went to work as a stock boy in the supermarket. And then I had a job in the, my uncle's motorcycle Ooh. shop. Uh, and I shared that money with my parents. And I remember thinking, I've got to go make some money because I don't want my parents to die broke, God forbid. And I got to go make some money. And I got to get myself educated. My father said to me when I got to jo- the job at Goldman Sachs, he said, I never want you to complain about your job. I said, why is that, Pops? He said, well, let me tell you something. Okay, you're indoors. You're out of direct sunlight, and there's no heavy lifting. And I think about my dad in cold weather trying to fix a broken crane in the middle of the day, freezing out here on Long Island. And so when I'm going through a bad day at work, I think of what he said, and I'm like, hey, man, it's fine. We're not missing a meal here. Everybody calm the F down, right? And so, but I wrote in my book at age 13 that I was going to have my own business. I was going to control my own destiny. Because I did not want the economic anxiety that my dad was expressing at home. And by the way, Chris, through no fault of his own, okay, he was a uneducated guy and he was a hard worker 
And I would never tell you or your listeners that I grew up poor. I did not grow up poor. I would never dishonor my dad's work ethic by telling anybody I grew up poor. Did not grow up poor. I grew up in the middle class in the United States. But we had a budget. It was tight. We shared a bedroom, my brother and I. There was one full bath in the house. Uh, And there was economic anxiety. So yes, I said to myself, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. Uh, And, you know, why did I go to law school? I thought that was a good defensive career decision. I figured if I had the legal skills, I could always land on my feet somewhere. I'm going to bring us a little bit more up to date now uh, then since it's that you've got these two incredible successful businesses you've set up and then one day you get a phone call from the White House. Um, how how uh, did you end up, because I believe, uh, you know, you voted for, I think, uh, Clinton and Obama. So, you know, uh, kind of, I suppose, Democrat, Democratic icons, let's say. Um, how did you end up working for Trump in the first place, even before the, the infamous so, 11 you know, days? There's a little bit of misinformation out there. You know, I gave a campaign check to Secretary Clinton. She was Senator Clinton at the time because uh, one of my clients asked me to do that. Trump has done that. You know, Trump gave money to Kamala Harris. He gave money to Chuck Schumer. Yeah. You know, when you're a practical New York businessman, you're giving money to both Democrats and Republicans. I raised money for Barack Obama because we had gone to law school together and we had mutual friends. And at that time in my life, again, we're back in the naive zone. I'm 44. I'm like, okay, I'm never going to know anybody that's the American president. Okay, we got this one guy from my law school class that's running for president. My buddies are raising money for him. Let me go go meet the guy. I go to meet Obama. We're at the uh, university club. In uh, New York, it's July of 2007. I walk over to then Senator Obama. I say, hey, you know, we didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to write you a big check, Senator. Can we have an agreement? Can I lie to people and tell them that we were good friends in law school? So he looks at me. He laughs. Okay, he (laughs) has the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. And he smiles at me and he says, I'll tell you what, Mooch, if you double the amount of the check, we could take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him and I laughed. I literally ripped the check up in front of him. I took another check out of my wallet and I doubled the amount of the check and I handed it to him. Now, of course, I've been to more Barack Obama Christmas parties and Donald Trump Christmas parties at the White House. But, but you know, it was just because it wasn't a I'm not that political. You know, the, the great irony of my right. life is how did I get into politics? I had no money, Chris, and I was at Goldman trying to build relationships and I wasn't a member of a country club, and I didn't know the kabuki handshake at these different networks. So the best way in was politics. I wrote my first check to Rudy Giuliani when I was 25 in 1989 for $250. Young Republicans for Rudy. Why was I a Republican? My father's union was controlled by Republicans out here in Nassau County. And so when I was 18, I turned to my pops. I said, am I a Republican or a Democrat? He's like, no, 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 you're a Republican. They're helping us with our contract. Okay, I'm a Republican. So I wrote my first check for a Republican. Rudy lost the race. That was good for me because I built a relationship with him. He then won the race in 93. He introduced me to George Pataki. I I worked for George. But I was a business person, fairly politically agnostic to the political process. I'm not a political Mm. guy. I'm 57, about to be 58 if I was really a political guy, I would have ran for office or something. That wasn't me. Uh, yeah. Trump was a unique circumstance. Had he uh, Jeb Bush always teases me, 
and said, well, if I had been president, your ass would have never been anywhere near the White House. And I would have said, yeah, and thank God for it, okay, because, you know, I wasn't well skilled for that. And so Trump got into the White House and he was very loosey-goosey. And uh, I think it, it stuck in his craw that I had said that about Bannon and Priebus. And he knew I was tough enough to to, to, right. to move those guys. And let's face it, in 11 days, Priebus was fired. Bannon was fired. Of course, I got fired. Um, and, and by the way, you know, listen, I don't like revising history. I tried to stay loyal to Trump after my firing. I, I wasn't bothered by being fired. I made a mistake. I deserved to be fired. I'm serving at the whim of the president. But he kept getting crazier and crazier and crazier. And then I said, look, I can't support this type of behavior. And by the way, I apologize for supporting this behavior earlier. I should have not supported it early on like Jeb did. Looking back on it, do you think oh he got crazier or, or, or do you oh think you... Well, sorry, we can revise history now. My question was, do you think he got crazier or do you think you just today. I could be oh. speaking somewhere, somebody come up to me, well, you're from New York. You knew he was crazy. I mean, why? I, you knew he was crazy. I said, you know, I did know he was crazy. But I didn't think it was that crazy, okay? And we did have some – You, if you want to dehumanize Trump, you can do that. He is a human being. And there's a lot of complexity to that human being. And believe it or not, there were some good things that he did as well. I mean people want to totally de demonize him and throw everything out. That's fine. But you know, at the time, we thought he was going to mature and rise to the job. You know who else thought that? Secretary Clinton. Mm -hmm. I met with her after the election. Mm -hmm. Uh, likable person. I always got on with her. And she said, yeah, he'll rise to the occasion of the job. He didn't. He couldn't. He didn't have the skill set. He was actually no. too insecure for that job. But so, yeah, no, I got it wrong. But you know what? Here's the other thing. I'm talking about no bullshit leadership. I got it wrong, Chris. So what do you do when you get something wrong? You say, you know what? I got this wrong. I apologize for getting it wrong. And so you know what I'm going to do now? I'm going to try to make it right. And that's all you can do in life. And so- if you're a leader, you're yeah. getting something yeah. wrong, you don't want the embarrassment of admitting it, grow up. Grow up and admit that you got something wrong and uh, and change your point of view and move forward. Just just to segue the conversation, by the way, I agree with all of that. It's an absolutely fascinating conversation. But to, to, to link it to a uh, favorite topic of Donald Trump's, which is uh, Twitter and social media, um, which obviously played a pretty big part in his presidency. Um, what, aside from the Trump-specific aspect, which I'd also like your view on, do you think social media, how do you think social media interacts or shapes modern leadership styles? Do you think uh, you have to interact in that space if you're a leader now? Do you think it's a force for good, a force for bad, neutral? Well, you know, listen, I mean, it's here to stay, so we have to accept it. I think that social media, if tobacco causes lung cancer, I would say that social media is creating levels of social anxiety in our society. I think it's not necessarily the greatest thing for children. I think it's helping to contribute mm -hmm. to the polarity in the society, the extremists in our dialogue and the way we now go after each other, our binary approach to things, our hot and cold approach to things. Our adversaries, uh, adversaries to the West and the ideas of liberal democracies are attacking us using this. They're trying to see if they can pit each other against each other, and they're trying to uh, figure out ways to demonize certain groups, uh, just get people lit up. The tribalism is on the rise as a result of it. Uh, and obviously Trump uh, you know, was masterful in some ways 
and a dangerous genius and others. He was masterful because he, he knew that he had the bully pulpit of social media. He had 150 million Twitter followers at his peak. That's one and a half times the Super Bowl audience. And he could reach people very quickly over social media unfiltered. So there's a mastery to that. I give him credit for that. There's a malevolence as well because he did turn it into an anger pulpit. You know, it would be like being in Hyde Park on Speaker's Corner and just shouting angry epithets to 150 million people. So so he did that. I think he, he coarsened yeah. the language of our political debate. But I will say this. You don't get Donald Trump unless you have a problem in the society. And the problem, the problem stems from the yeah. blue-collar people, once being economically aspirational. You know, my dad was an economically aspirational person. I lived in a blue-collar aspirational family. 35 short years later, these blue-collar families became economically desperational. And when you're economically desperational, Chris, you are angry. And if you have somebody that's a megaphone for your anger, he's going to channel your anger he can raw dog porn stars. He can say nasty things about American military veterans like John McCain. You don't care. He is now your guy. He's going to stick a thumb in the eye of the political establishment, the medical establishment, the media establishment, and all of those groups in your mind are preventing you and your family from achieving, uh, uh, from reaching your aspirations. And so we have to fix that. If we don't, if we don't fix it, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a mess. It's going to get worse. And and okay. and Trump, to me, he you. had the opportunity to fix it. He could have been a transformative leader. He could have been a postpartisan leader of the United States, but he wasn't capable of doing it because sure. he didn't have the personality, he didn't have the strength of leadership uh, to build that coalition. He was too insecure. Do Do you think he'll win again? Uh, I don't think there's any path for him to win again. Uh, I think there's a money-making operation there where he's raising money from rubes that believe the election lie and all this nonsense. Uh, could he run again? Um, I'm going to make a prediction here on your podcast. No, he's not going to run again because he's not going to want to be a two-time loser of the American presidency. Remember, he is the worst yeah. political failure for Republicans since Herbert Hoover. He lost the presidency, the House and the Senate – Last person to do that is Herbert Hoover. So he is a political, he's an abject mm -hmm. political failure. On his watch, uh, we experienced five or 600,000 deaths from COVID. We lost 21 million jobs mm -hmm. as a result of his mishandling of that public health crisis. Um, he's also, he created a more tense world. So he's an abject political failure, uh, but he does have a stronghold on 20 to 25 percent of the population, mostly white, that are disaffected from the establishment. Yeah. So so he is a polarizing yeah. populist uh, that has a standing in the political community. He has to be defeated. And so, you know, I'm not in politics anymore. I signed yeah. with CNBC. You won't see me on CNN anymore for those reasons. I want to talk about business and growing my business and protecting my family. But I love my country. He goes back out to run. I will stop everything I'm doing, and I will work against him the way I worked against him in the fall of 2020. And uh, people like me work against yeah. him, and I predict there'll be many more people like me because he's lost some strength. When you're going, you want to talk about balls, okay? You're going up against the American president. You want to talk about no bullshit leadership? How about going up against the American president yeah. on national television, local television? 
and telling people what you really think about the son of a bitch uh, so that they don't make the same stupid decision that I made in 2016. And so he's weaker now. So as a result of that, there'll be more people willing to go after him the way I was last fall. And so Trump is wrong for the country. And uh, I I have no problem going right back out there. It costs me money. It costs me business. It costs me clients. I don't give a shit, Chris. Okay. That's no bullshit leadership. Okay. It's important. It's important to stick your neck out when you need to, when the, when the priorities are such that it requires. There you go. So I got that. That's a fa- that's it's been fascinating. I would two. You're a bit very very busy man. I've got two questions that I just want to finish on. The first is, um, I mean, you just had an incredible career. I mean, I, I feel like I could talk to you for. Oh, I certainly could listen to you for ages. Uh, you know, you've got uh, so many uh, so much fascinating experience. Um, but do do you ever um do you ever suffer from self doubt? Of course. I mean, you know, of course I suffer from self doubt. I I uh, I'm like every other human being. But you know, here's the thing. Like, I'll tell you what I don't suffer from. I don't suffer from the willingness to take risk, and I don't suffer from feeling overly pained by self conscious embarrassment. So you know, you want to wear a polyester suit, you don't even know better. You think you're wearing, you know, you think you're wearing your Sunday best. You're in your polyester, and the guy's telling you you look like shit. That's embarrassing. It's very self-conscious. You're blown from the White House. You're fired from Goldman Sachs. I mean, I could name a hundred other failures. I think I've made a decision, rightly or wrongly, that uh, there's no way I'm going to go from the family I came from to where I would like to go for my family if I'm not willing to take that arc of the risk. And all the downside that happens mm-hmm. too. You know, I have failed upwards, Chris. I've had a series of failures, but by staying tenacious and staying in the game, I have failed upwards. And so, um, of course, I have self doubt. Uh, of course, I wake up some mornings and say, okay, I hope I'm doing the right thing here. Uh, we're making a decision to hire somebody, mm-hmm. open an office, build a, a business. You know, my business got clocked in March of 2020. Uh, we were making a calculation about the pandemic. I thought it was going to be like mirrors and source. Man, did I get that wrong. Uh, I did not think it was going to be a blo- global pandemic that was going to affect four and a half billion people. And I, my portfolio was misplaced. We lost 25% of our money in a two-week period of time in March of 2020. Uh, that was the worst year of my life in two weeks, okay, professionally I'm talking about, you know, and- and so talk about self-doubt, uh, on April 1st, I was loaded with it. Okay, where are we going from here? Man, I got that so wrong. Where are we going from here? Now, the good news is we rebounded. We're up 60 or 70% from that bottom. Some of that was inducted by the Federal Reserve. Yeah. So don't confuse brains with a bull market. I mean, you know, they, they liquefied the markets and the rising tide lifted us. Yeah. But yeah, I, I have self-doubt, of course. Uh, but here's the thing I do have. I have a love of life and I have a love of people Mm. and I'm reminded of what Mel Brooks says about life and I'm reminded of it every day. Uh, In the immortal words of Mel Brooks, relax, none of us are getting out of here alive. Okay, I just want you to think about that for a second. So when you're feeling self-doubt or you're feeling levels of anxiety, which are natural because you're worried about the future, remember what Mel Brooks says, you're not getting out of here alive. So let's just do the best we can do while we're here. 
And if you made the mistake, you know, it's okay. You know, you, you know, you're going to be fine. You know, look at the mistakes that I've made. I'm still, still kicking, still swinging. And, uh, and, and, and what next? Good. It's a good question. I want, I want to, I want to, I want to build and grow this business. I have adult children. They're millennials. I have younger children too, because I'm, I'm remarried 10 years ago. So I want to help them with their careers, uh, create a platform for them to uh, experience some level of self-actualization. Um, I will probably help uh, one of the candidates for the New York State governorship. I was uh, very active in Eric Adams's campaign for mayor here in New York, even though he's a, a Democrat and I'm a lifelong Republican. I think he's a common sense politician. And, you know, if he offers me a political appointment, I would likely take it to help him. You know, if there's an economic development appointment available, I would take it and help him, help him rebuild the city, grow the city, sell people on the idea of the city. Yeah. You know, I, I'm a New Yorker, built my family and business here. Um, I'll probably write some more, um, perhaps uh, do some teaching. I don't know. There's a whole list of things that I, I will do. Um I don't see myself as a political candidate. I don't think I have the temperament or personality for that. Um, too much, uh, too much lying. I mean, Jesus Christ! I mean, these fucking be they, too much lying. I, I yeah. wouldn't be able to keep this. Yeah, yeah I, I wouldn't be able talking. to keep the story straight. You know, but could could I help? Could I help somebody? Yeah. Um, but I, you know, listen, I'm, I listen. I, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want you to think I have the answers, my friend. Okay, I'm not. I hope I haven't come across pedantic or like. I think I have the answers. I've been humbled by life. Um, I recognize the frailty, but I would remind people listening of something that Churchill once said, and he was saying it more about himself than anybody else because he was recognizing his own human weaknesses. He turned to one of his colleagues uh, and he said, you know, the best among us, the best, the best among us choose not to judge human frailty so harshly. And so I ask people not to judge me yeah. so harshly, and I will do everything I can every day of my life not to judge others so harshly because we're, we're human beings living in the human condition, and there's a frailness to that. And so I accept that. And so, so, th so therefore, you know, you know you, all, all we can do is go forward and do our best to help each other. Isn't that the spirit of no bullshit leadership? That is the spirit of no bullshit leadership. Uh, and that's a fantastic place to end. You know, my, my view is we need more better leaders everywhere. So uh, if you can pass on any of your skills, then the world's going to be a better place. So thank you so much for being on. I've really, really enjoyed that. I've really enjoyed meeting you. It's been uh, inspirational. Thank Same you. Same here, Chris. Hopefully we can get together when I get to the UK, we get a beer together. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review No Bullshit Leadership on Apple Podcasts. It lets us know what you think and helps others to find the show. Thank you.